the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Uh, favorite commentators, authors, and writers, and that's uh, Dr. Wilford Riley. He is the author of two supremely important books, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War and Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. And they both are relevant to uh, the article he had uh, over at Spiked that uh, I just read, uh, I guess it was published yesterday, I read it today, Systemic Racism is a Conspiracy Theory. Uh, Professor Riley, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Sure, always good to be on the show. Good to have you, sir. Everyone says, you know, the last year was so miserable, and it was in so many respects, but I think it was the first year I discovered your scholarship and work and got to know you, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not chalking it up. I'm not chalking it all to a bad year. It was a good year in that I got to get to know you and your work, so uh, thank you for for uh, being so willing to always joining us and sharing your thoughts with us. Systemic racism is a phrase that became, what, uh, popular in the last, really, in a big way in the last two years, probably more so over the summer and its fallout. And um, several people have pointed out it's worth thinking about how much racism does play a role in American life. And you say it's marginal. Tell, tell us your theory on this. Yeah, so the piece that I wrote that you're referencing, and thanks for the compliment, by okay. the way, came out in Spike, the big uh, Brit men's magazine. And what I said is that we've been hearing a lot about conspiracy theories lately. So the Democrats are alleging that Trump's claims of electoral fraud, we don't need to get into that one, but are entirely false. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, despite being kind of a backbench freshman congresswoman, is taking some heat for things she said years in the past. You know, the Republicans have a noise machine, too, and they're, they're coming at Ilhan Omar, saying that her description of 9-11 was some people somewhere did something, which, to be fair, it was. Um, and I think that under all this, as we talk about conspiracy, we're missing some of the big things that a lot of people believe that don't really have any evidence for them. And one of, this, one of them is kind of this woke idea of ever-present, systemic, subtle racism. So if you're in business at an executive level, you're a college student, you're going to hear a lot about white privilege and cultural appropriation and so on. And in my most recent book, I look, Taboo, what you mentioned, I look at whether this is real, i.e., we all understand that black people, just like southern whites for that matter, are more likely to be poor because of past ethnic conflict. But if you take black guys and white guys that are the same age, the average black man is almost 15 years younger than the average white man, that are from the same region, and black people are more likely to live in the South, they have the same test scores, let's be real, we still have about 80, 90 points to make up. Do, are those people treated differently? And what we find is no in real social science. So what systemic racism consists of very often is kind of pointing at something, like black guys are more likely to be arrested than white guys, and never really addressing tough but real issues, like is the crime rate higher? Uh, Italian-Americans are more likely to be arrested than other whites, but I don't think anyone chalks that up to prejudice rather than the existence of 
the mob in urban areas. So we need to really talk about some of this stuff. And I find a lot of the claims that are out there, the Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo stuff, I find that pretty unconvincing. Um, Dr. Riley, yes, I do too. And for some reason, it's really a merge, merging of both of your books, uh, Taboo, things you can't, 10 Things You Can't Talk About, Anything You Can't Talk About, and uh, The Hate Crime Hoax, uh, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. The, the, the problem is, for someone like me, the difficulty in talking about it. So I can marshal the evidence that you bring to the table, and we'll get to it in a moment. <clears throat> and you know, perhaps someone like uh, our mutual friend Dennis Prager can do the same thing. But for us to raise it is a very difficult uh, proposition to be heard fairly because we will be shouted down and denounced uh, as perpetuating uh, uh, perpetuating a racism that serves our interests because we are, after all, white men. And, uh, and, 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 and so the slanders come pretty fast and rapid. Uh, you, 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 I think, appreciate what I'm saying. Is it easier? Is it easier for someone other than us to make this case? Or um, do you get the same kind of pushback yourself? Well, I mean, now, first of all, I think that everyone, whether you're talking about middle class, blacks, um, white Americans, needs to, let's put this politely, gut up and start responding to some of these critiques, these attempts at cancel culture. But I, I will freely admit, yeah, it is probably more difficult for a white dude to talk about, say, inner city black issues than for a black guy. And frankly, this is one of the reasons I write about yep. this. I mean, I write yep. about a range of things. Yep. I'm, I'm an investor in my personal life, blah, blah, blah. I wrote a book about hate crime hoaxes. Yep. But one of the reasons I talk about race is that I think it is pretty useful for me as a right-leaning black guy who's also obviously not a racist. I mean, I'm a professor at a K-State, a pretty well-known college, to get out there and say these are the actual facts. Uh, the piece we're talking about, I was kind of surprised Spike published it, not because it was so controversial, but because parts of it were so boring. It's just a list of income stats by group. But one of the points I make is that incomes vary by more than 300% among white groups. And there's no way to use racism as an excuse for this. Um, That's so a good point. Can you pause on that a moment? Pause. I, I, sorry to interrupt, but this is hugely important. People compare, too many people I would say, compare white income versus, I don't know, say black income or African American yeah. income. The white disparities are huge. Are you talking Jewish Americans? Are you talking Southern, right? That, that itself has disparities, as does the African American or black community, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. All right, I mean, sorry. So, yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's your show. But no, I mean, <laughs> when, you look at, when you look at whites, first of all, I think if we're going to talk about offensive statements, one of them is sort of lumping everyone together as white Black. I mean, this isn't a major pet peeve of mine, but white is a broad sweeping group. Agreed. So the average income for Jews is the highest in the USA. I think most people would agree. It's about 140000 per household. Australian or British immigrants, what you probably think of as just WASP, people from the other former nations of the Commonwealth, that's about 100000 110000 Then you get down to Appalachians, what are sometimes mockingly called hillbillies in my region of the country. You're talking perhaps thirty, forty thousand dollars right. Louisiana Cajuns, Pennsylvania Dutchmen. So nobody denies that Appalachian white people are white. They're some of the whitest right. individuals, some of the longest-tenured Americans, but they don't make any money. Right. Why do Jews make five times as much money as white guys in Kentucky? And why would we assume that those same variables, like getting a graduate degree in an integrated college, wouldn't help a black man or an Asian person? Right. Right. So 
it just kind of last comment here. I mean, we see the same thing with black people. Right. Um, one of the top 20 income earning groups, if I recall correctly, is Nigeria. The Nigerians, uh, the, Ghan- the Ghanaians. The from Africa. And the Ghanaians the blow Ghan- me away. Them, yeah. yeah, right. So the Ghanaian Americans, as I think the Nigerian Americans, they out earn the average white American, if I'm not mistaken, and I read the data right. Uh, yeah, by more than $5,000. Yeah. yeah, and Guyanese as well. So. That that that's one issue that we have to, I guess, in your in your in your argot, we would say disaggregate the data a little bit more, right? But what does explain that? What does explain Ghanaian and Nigerian and Guyanese success? Well, that, that's the thing. It's a dull, multivariate set of things that involve you know marrying your fiance yeah. and paying attention in school. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's nothing too exciting. Um, so, first of all, no one denies that there is some racism. I mean, I mentioned in the piece that uh, I believe it was German-Americans make slightly more money than Ghanaian-Americans. Okay. If you look at a well-qualified, very competitive white group that made 71000 and the well-qualified, very competitive black group made 69500 So is there an $800 effect of racism or something like that? If you're buying a car or getting your first job, as a black guy, I'd be inclined to believe there is. Okay. But the, the effect of racism isn't the $70,000. What makes you a stable person with a middle-class $70,000 a year job? Uh, education. How you perform on the standardized tests. Whether you marry your partner. It's really quite dull. I mean, the, the biggest thing that drives down both African-American and Southern white household incomes, as someone who's coached a fair amount in this region, is fatherlessness. For both of those groups, if half the households do not have a dad present, you're going to make less money because one is a smaller number than two. Yep. So it's things like this that lead people to be successful. Marry your high school sweetheart, get a degree, beyond that get a college diploma, et cetera. Wait till marriage to have children, that kind of thing, right? The kind Absolutely. of stuff we've Don't learned from – Right, the, Brook, the Brookings uh, Isabel Sawhill stuff, right? All of that uh, that we've been, we've been, have, have been taught for years. But then that brings into – question two other issues. And one is the cause of illegitimacy, if that's the right word for it, or let's say fatherlessness, that's perhaps a better word for it. And the other is the thing you said, standardized tests, because we will hear that there is systemic racism built into the standardized tests. I have to take a quick break. Can you stay with me one more segment? We can pick up on those two points. I I appreciate it, Dr. Riley. Thank you. We're talking to Wilfred Riley, his two most recent books, both so important, eye-opening. Uh, Black Lies Matter. Why li- well, I'm sorry, that's not his most recent. Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. He has other books too, but those are the two most recent, and they're fantastic. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Professor Wilfred Riley with us. His uh, most uh, two most recent books, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, and Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. We're discussing his piece in Spiked, Spiked Online about systemic racism as a conspiracy th- uh, theory. Professor, right before the break, you, were, you, you, you mentioned two things I wanted to zero in on a little bit more, if I could, with you, that um, – it's not so much systemic racism, as you put it, as it has to do with family structure or not great family structures in certain communities, certain minority communities, 
and not uh, better performance on standardized tests. If we could take the second one first, you will often hear, I will often hear, standardized tests are themselves great examples of built-in systemic racism, to which you say what? I mean, that's absolute nonsense. I mean, I think what we've seen with a lot of this stuff is just the making of an endless series of excuses over... Not, not even so much in the middle-class black business community or certainly the Asian community, but on the part of, quote-unquote, allies that just want to help us out. I mean, if you look at something like the SAT in the United States, um, either the half or two-thirds majority of that, depending on how you feel about the analytical section, yep. uh, is math. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you can just look at group scores on the math section if you want to make sure that these gaps are not due to bias. And the, the gaps are virtually identical. Asians beat whites, whites beat blacks, blacks beat at least first-generation Latinos, natives struggle. I mean, so there, there's clearly something else going on. I think we can all sympathize with the Spanish guy taking a test in English or a native guy taking a sure. test on the reservation. Sure. But you still, to it, there's just an obvious logical reality that getting to law school, you have to do well on the LSAT. Okay. And the groups that do well on the LSAT tend to be Asians, Jews, black Africans, they're certainly not people that have had an easy time over here. Okay. And that itself is not so much, in your view, a resultant from systemic racism as it is other factors. For example, you had mentioned family structure. You tweeted an, a stat today. I knew it from before, but most people don't realize, as, 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 um, as, as in the year 1938, you had a fatherless rate in the African, in the black or African American community, just topping about double digits at ten or eleven percent. Right, that number has skyrocketed. Some will say that's because of racism. You will say it's because of. Well, I mean, I think it's because of the left wing welfare state. I mean, and I will say, kind of half jokingly, friendly competition. But you, you guys beat us. The, the white rate in nineteen thirty eight through nineteen forty six, that time frame, was about six percent. So you're talking about, let's say, 5% of Caucasian family or 5% of Caucasian kids, 10% of African-American kids are born, quote-unquote, out of wedlock. This is in the modern era. This is World War II, and those two groups were in fairly serious conflict with one another, but both took care of their kids. Uh, the illegitimacy rate right now for black Americans is 72%. For white Americans, about 40%, if you count Caucasian, Hispanics. And for young and working-class whites, it's about 50%. So we're in a weird position that's never before been seen in history, where of the two largest racial groups in this massive country, three-quarters of one and half of the other are born into or living in sort of father-absent families. There's a drought of dads, similar to what you'd see after a lost war. It's, it's bizarre. And it was a time bomb we were warned about in the 60s when those numbers were what was it, something like 12% in the Caucasian community and 25% in the black community, something like that, around 1965, when, when, when some of us were beginning to wake up. To, we were told that was a time bomb then. Those numbers having skyrocketed, I mean, we're, we're in the soup now, aren't we? Yeah, I, mean, I do think that because of growing wealth, technology, the great role grandparents have played since people are living longer, we're probably going to be able to escape but not treating this as a serious national problem is extraordinarily bizarre. And I, I think that the, not the traditional liberal democratic bloc that's kind of our rival political party, the union guys, but the activist left has been almost useless in this sector. Okay. Mostly what they have done, in my opinion, 
as a scholar, is attempt to redefine problems as non-problems. So you'll see white papers with titles like ending the use of the term illegitimacy. Right. And I think instead the focus should be on why do half the white kids and three-quarters of the black kids not have a dad? What you call it, that's almost irrelevant. But, I mean, at the most basic level, if you grow up in a poor household with no father, you're less likely to do well on a complex four-hour math test than if you grow up in a wealthy household with a father. Did you have enough to eat that morning? I mean, it's true at a very basic, Yeah, no, did you have enough to level. eat? Did you have a dad, perhaps, or a mom who wasn't working who could help you with your homework or hire a tutor? Right, all of that. Which brings me to the massive curiosity I have, which is throughout the Black Lives Matter literature and curriculum, which is the restructuring of the family. They say it again and again and again, and they talk about honoring mothers, and they do not mention fathers. And i got to tell you, from my perspective, nothing could be more harmful to minority communities than abiding by that, by, by, by that, by that argument of theirs. I, I totally agree. I think that there are only so many human ideas at the most <laughs> cynical level. So when someone says, we're going to challenge what you guys are talking about right now, which is sort of yeah. – business centrism, through yeah. conservatism, yeah. take care of your kids, yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah. The ideas that they're bringing to the table aren't going to be something unique, like we'll feed families with magic, because right. magic doesn't exist. Right. They're going to be old, dated, bad ideas. Monarchism, sometimes on the Islamic right, communism on the left, we've heard them before. These are our, our opponents, essentially. We've seen these ideas fail. So, yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter... First of all, obviously, black lives do matter, just like white ones and Asian ones and so on. But Black Lives Matter TM, the organization, yeah. is a radical quasi-Marxist group that said a great deal of things like this. Um, until they were criticized for it, I believe, last September, one of their original sort of founding ten points was disrupt the nuclear family. That's right. Quote, unquote. That's right. Disrupt yeah. the nuclear family, uh, end private education. And uh, and uh, and their curricula today, though, still does have the nuclear family as a target. Um it, it it still does, and it, it just seems to me, it just seems to me, you want to help black lives or minority lives or any lives, you want to support the family and build on the family, not not disrupt it. More fathers, well, not less. I, absolutely, uh, no. I mean, I suppose one could say this about the right as well, where there's you, you have evangelical Christians in the same coalition as some of my former trading for buddies and so on. But we're attacking the left right now. So a problem for the organized left, I think, would be shoehorning all these identities under one tent. So BLM's in a tough position being a black movement, but also a feminist movement and a gay movement with mostly white Marxist donors. Does that make sense? Right, yes. No, that you nailed it. They're trying to say all of these things at the same time. We'll we'll preserve the black church is a very secondary point, but it is something to say. But also full trans rights. Mm -hmm. And you have to ask the question, well, what does the black church think about that? I mean, (laughs) these are not... Right. This is like Islam and feminism, right? I mean, it, no, it, that's right. There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing inherently wrong with moderate Islam. There's nothing wrong with being a strong woman. Yeah. If you say our movement's going to center both Islam and feminism, however, you have a problem. Yep. I, I, I totally agree. That's actually very fun. But I am curious. Maybe we can do it on our next visit. Uh, let's, criti- let's critique the right on the next, on the next visit, if, if, if you'd like to. I'd love to hear you out on that. I would love to. Sure. Okay. Great. Professor Riley, uh, Wilford Riley, get his books, folks. They are eye-opening. Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, and Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. Professor, we'll do it again soon, and we'll take the other side on, okay? Sounds great, although I might be a little little softer on that. But great. great I'll, I'll be show. softer than, even still, but I want to hear you out. I'm very curious. I can't wait to do it. Thank you, sir. Fair enough. All right. God bless. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 508 0960, your show all the way out.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. Your show from here all the way out, uh, anything you want to talk about. We got into an interesting discussion in the last hour about what we need to do prior to the elections in 2022. Still happy to entertain that conversation as well. Are you familiar with what's going on with Joe Biden's nominee for the Director of Office and Management and Budget, Nira Tandon? This 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 woman is a scourge. She has tweeted throughout the last four years some of the most nasty, vicious stuff about Republicans. Um, she has called Senator Tom Cotton a fraud. She has uh, said that uh, tweeted that T- Ted Cruz has uh, vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. She has referred to the Senate Majority uh, le- then the Senate Majority Leader, now Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell as Moscow Mitch. And this is the tame stuff. We have thousands of it, thousands of tweets of hers uh, that she has been on a um, deleting binge. But because of uh, people preserving them, um, they have become an issue in her confirmation hearings. And no one put her on the spot quite like uh, one of my favorite senators from uh, Louisiana, John Kennedy. Do you have that audio, Bill? Uh, This is him questioning her. You know, I'll tell you something. These people are so arrogant when they are asked a simple question. You know, just answer it. Just answer it. She's not smarter than John Kennedy. She thinks she is. And by not answering it, you don't realize how much of a liar and insincere person you look like. It would be easy to answer. But listen to this. Just listen to this arrogance. I I have to tell you, I'm very disturbed about your personal comments about people. Um, And it's not just one or two. I think you deleted about a thousand tweets. And it wasn't just about Republicans. And I don't mind disagreements in policy. I think that's great. I love the dialectic. But the comments were personal. I mean, you call Senator Sanders everything but an ignorant. That is not. That is not true. And when, when you when you said these things, did you mean them? I wouldn't have said ignorant. <laughs> Senator, I have to say, I deeply regret my comments. I understand that, but and when I you said them, did you them. mean them? I understand you, you you've taken them back, but did you mean them? I'd say. The discourse over the last four years on all sides has been incredibly polarizing. I'm asking about yours. Did you mean them? I really feel badly about them, Senator. Did you mean them? I feel badly about them. Did you mean them when you said them? I mean, I would say social media is a is is. I've Did you mean them when discourse. you said them? I feel terribly about them. Did you mean them when you said them, or were you not telling the truth? I. I, I mean, I feel badly. I look back at them. I'm, I said them. I feel badly about them. I deleted tweets over. Are you saying that because you want to be confirmed? No, I felt badly about okay. them. And Did you mean them. them when you said them? Senator, I, I must have meant them, but I really regret them. Just really incredible how hard it is to get her to answer the question. It was pretty simple, um, the arrogance here. This is who's going to be your OMB director. Um, someone who is called the worst names of the people she has to work with in the Senate if she is confirmed, everyone from Mitch McConnell to Ted Cruz. Sure, they'll be in the minority. But um, the idea that she can defend herself by saying the rhetoric on all sides has been escalated. Yeah, but you were part of it. 
you were part of the essay. You were the reason for it in some respects by being so high profile and using that kind of language. You know, I don't know if <laughs> I'd ever be confirmed or even nominated for anything, but I'll tell you something. There's nothing I, I mean, I do pretty good rough and tumble politics here. I've never tweeted anything like that. I never felt I had to. I've never said anything like the kinds of things she said. I've never felt I had to. You can be – and by the way, John Kennedy, he throws a good punch. He's never had to say anything like that or delete a tweet. I don't think there's a Republican in the Senate that's had to. You can be strong and 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 a fierce advocate for your position without calling people four-letter words and using language you would be embarrassed if your children used about your political opponents, which is what she has trafficked in. Over a thousand tweets like that. And we're supposed to just say, oh, yeah, well, the rhetoric all around has been bad. No, this is what we're talking about. People who play politics like blood sport and think the rules don't apply to them. We'll see if they do. Had a caller uh, from John asking me, I think it was a Bob, uh, sorry, Bob, I think. Uh, asking me if I could explain the trajectory of the conservative movement from Goldwater and Reagan to Trump. I got a lot of reactions asking if I could re-air that call from yesterday. We'll do it here. We'll do it now. <clears throat> so we had a call Bob in Phoenix based on some other discussions we had earlier in the day who heard me say something about uh, Goldwater and something about conservatism and uh, Reagan and Trump. Bob, I'm going to ask if you are still with us to ref, uh, to, to I, I'm going to I'm going to try and restate your question, and if it's unfair, you tell me, and then I'll commence answering it. Okay? As I understood okay. your question, you said, um, put it somewhat this way: Can you explain how we go from Goldwater to Reagan to Trump? in what they have in common, even though you think Trump isn't necessarily a conservative. Is that somewhat close? Yeah, that's, that's close. I'm just wondering where the where the, the conservative Republican Party is going, where okay. they've been. Okay, so, good. Um, but yeah, it all falls into the same. All right, let me, let me say a few words on it, and you can feel free to respond when I'm done. Because I've spent about 30 years of my life working on this, and as I said, I co-authored a book on this as well, American Greatness. Um, first of all, let's start with William Buckley, who made a distinction between someone who is conservative and someone who is a conservative. Um, Donald Trump would be an example, probably Buckley wasn't alive for his presidency, but it would be an example of someone who is conservative but is not a conservative. A conservative is someone like a Goldwater, someone like a Reagan, someone who intuitively – um, and intellectually um, grasps the modern conservative movement and wants to apply it. Trump is probably less studied in the sense of Goldwater and Reagan, but was conservative in the sense of, of, of how he governed and who he surrounded himself with, which were good conservatives. You look at his judicial picks, in some respects, they might have been better than Reagan's, probably were. In, in hindsight, also had more of a more more of a more of a menu to pick from uh, than Reagan uh, for other reasons. But the modern conservative movement began with William Buckley in 1955 and the advent of National Review magazine. And National Review magazine's first issue uh, put out what they would call a creed or a credenda, as they called it. 
and it had four points to it, okay? First, the growth of government must be fought relentlessly. Second, the century's most blatant force of satanic utopianism is communism. We consider coexistence with communism neither desirable nor possible nor honorable. We find ourselves irrevocably at war with communism and shall oppose any substitute for victory. Three, the largest cultural menace in America is the conformity of the intellectual cliques, which in education as well as the arts are out to impose upon the nation their fads and fallacies and have nearly succeeded in doing so. And then finally, no superstition has more effectively bewitched America's liberal elite than the fashionable concepts of world government, the United Nations, internationalism, international atomic pools, etc., so that's what the modern conservative magazine move, movement and magazine National Review was founded on, those four points. One might add something that was later known, a couple, uh, about five years later, known as the Sharon Statement. The Sharon Statement is named after the house, uh, the city, the house of which Bill, Bill Buckley lived in, which was in Sharon, Connecticut. And the Sharon Statement was the founding uh, document of the Young Americans for Freedom movement, and it had five points very closely related to those four. One, individual freedom and the right of governing originate with God. Two, political freedom is impossible without economic freedom. Three, limited government and strict interpretation of the Constitution. Four, the free market system is preferable over all others. Five, communism must be defeated, not contained. Now, it's my thesis, Bob, or my belief, that there is nothing in the Sharon Statement or nothing in the credenda of the first issue of National Review that Donald Trump disagreed with, with the one exception being um, uh, you would might maybe want to add um, uh, perhaps radical Islam or ISIS to the threat of communism. But when you think about China, especially in the latter years of his administration, you can see that the coexistence with communism or that the idea that communism must be defeated, not contained, played high in Donald Trump's mind. But think about those credenda from National Review. The growth of government must be fought relentlessly, okay? Eliminating of re elimination of regulations uh, and cutting taxes. Uh, we did the communist thing. Uh, three, the cultural menace in America, the conformity of intellectual cliques, which in education as well as the arts are out to impose upon their nation their modest fads. Sure, you get the 1776 commission. You get the executive order to deprive funds to um, – to, uh, to, uh, to colleges and universities that don't respect free speech. And then, of course, no superstition has more effectively bewitched America's liberal elite than world government. And that has to do with international institutions, NATO, World Health Organization, you name it. So I don't see any real disconnect between the origins of the intellectual modern conservative movement as represented by William Buckley, Barry Goldwater, and, Reagan, and Ronald Reagan as divergent from anything Donald Trump did as president. In fact, it seems to me he was continuous with the Reagan-Goldwater-Buckley line of conservative thought and governance. I think Bush's and Nixon and Ford were the outliers and the exceptions to what we conservatives thought was Goldwater and Buckley conservatism. How's that for a nutshell? Uh, I can't believe that's the most comprehensive answer. <laughs> I think I over the rim and you took it home. Well, I've been preparing for that question for 30 years, <laughs> <Yeah>. sir. <laughs> okay. No, um, just real quickly, um, the, the only, I have only one major problem sure. with, with uh, Donald Trump sure. is that he, he didn't cut spending. I think right. spending is a big issue. Right. And so as a conservative, I think that's very disappointing. Um, 
But looking forward, um, I think the conservative movement, and I'd be curious what you think they need to do, but my thing is they got two big obstacles. One of them is the media, no doubt about that, okay? The other one is I think this country has gotten to the point where, you know, conservatives are, are for less government. Um, a lot of the people in this country want, it, it, opposite of what uh, John F. Kennedy said, they want, what can the country do for me, not what I can do for the country? <laughs> so I think they've got it all backwards. We have got it all backwards. I, I agree with you. Yeah. It's a different country. It's a different right. country. And it didn't, so how do you it, turn it around? Well, it took, me, it took me the coronavirus to understand that it's a different country. I didn't – I would have never guessed, I would have never predicted that when the, something like coronavirus came to us, we would in, in, in 19 years basically move from an ethic of let's roll to let's roll up in a ball and hide under our beds. I, I, it's I a different country than the martial virtues and uh, martial attitudes that you got from the Kennedys – and that you got what the Ted's and Roberts anyway, excuse me, the Johns and Roberts anyways, not the Ted perhaps so much, uh, that you got from John F. Kennedy, um, that you got from Roosevelt. Now, there is a distinction, by the way, that, you know, this is all not, not everyone is the same and not everyone had the same view. There is a distinction between Goldwater and Reagan that's worth pointing out that gets to your point about spending as well, Bob. Goldwater went after the New Deal of Roosevelt's. Reagan, and of course, there was no great society when Goldwater was running for president. The great society came after 1964. Reagan did not go after the New Deal. He went after the great society of Lyndon Johnson's. Reagan went to things like welfare reform and affirmative action. He did not touch things like Social Security that Barry Goldwater wanted to. There was a difference there between those two, um, which gets you to some of the spending issues because you're right. Conservatives generally want to curtail government spending, not because we hate government and not because we hate spending. It's because we hate government spending, because we think individual spending is far more effective and is far more um, not only uh, judicious but charitable, and that people should have a right to keep and spend as they see fit, not as a bureaucratic elite sees fit. So where do we go from here? I think it's easy. I really do. Um, easy to say, maybe harder to do. I think it's easy. I think we have to go back to these fundamental basics and learn that Donald Trump, let me say something controversial. Donald Trump showed us how to win and he showed us how to lose. And I'm happy to talk more about all that, too. We'll be right back. back to the Seth Liebson show 6025080960 Anthony's in surprise hi Anthony Hi how you doing I'm well sir how are you Great thanks I, I want to get your opinion on uh the uh, the evidence of that 3 hour um program that Mike Lindell put out um with all the technical stuff about the voting issue have you reviewed any of that information i've not uh, well yes i have reviewed the information that i understand constituted a lot of what was in that video i have not seen his production i have not seen his video though does that make right. sense so i've i've read uh, yeah no i just haven't watched it did you watch it i i did and, and i work in it and, was it and good was it compelling 
Well, the thing is, there's a colonel, Air Force colonel that's retired that did some analysis down in Texas, right, for a company. And when I first saw his evidence come out, which was probably, I don't know, maybe a month ago, uh, it t- made perfect sense to me because this is what I do, and I've been doing it for 30 years. Yeah. So, I, and I work with a bunch of IT folks, and um, and I have uh, other people in my family that are IT, and we sat down and we talk about this, and we all understand perfectly um, how this has worked technically. So, my my concern is obviously there's a lot of people that aren't in IT that don't understand all the technical pieces of it, but I'm kind of curious on on the opinion of so here's been presented. Who, who is who is the colonel? It's not Merritt, or is it Joshua Merritt or someone else? You know, I don't recall his last name. Okay. I'm not really that great with names. That's okay. But l- let me, yeah, let me say this: is that um, my concern was so. Here's all this technical information, and I guess um, Sidney Powell as well kind of alluded to a lot of this stuff. So, are are we saying generally as an audience that that we don't believe any of that technical information? No, I'm not. I don't know enough. What I do know. Yeah. Is and that's why I asked if this was uh, the person referred to as uh, Joshua Merritt because that's someone out of the Dallas area Sidney Powell has used, and the biography doesn't stand up, and that's why I, I I raised it. You may not be citing that person, but when you have a military intelligence person out of Dallas, it's likely that it's that person, and the bio just isn't right. what they portray it to be. So, you know, when these people aren't who they say they are or claim to be and they're not the experts that they say they are or claim to be, you know, I just, it just makes us look silly. And I don't – you know, I am willing to go to the mat on this stuff. I just need credibility, and I don't have it. Right. I don't have it. The problem I've said all along is there's not one strong silver bullet that shows what the fraud was, and there's one not one strong silver bullet that shows there wasn't, which is why I remain open to the arguments – but I need the arguers to be credible.